Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Editor Rich Eisen. And as always, I am joined by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well. How are you, Rich? I could not ask to be better. That's all I can say. It's Friday. We're all having a great time, right? That's true. All right. Well, uh, we're joined today by some folks who are going to help us talk about an issue that's been uh, top of mind for a lot of people in the health field for a long time, which is struggles uh, in recruiting workforce. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about behavioral health workforce. There's a really interesting new study that just came out from UC San Francisco, uh, really laying out some of the significant challenges in this area. And so to help us get it correct as we talk about this a little bit, we're, we're joined today by Dr. Janet Kaufman of Health of the Health Force Center at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF to the rest of us out there in the world. And we're also joined by Michelle Cabrera, the Executive Director of the uh, County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California, which is a mouthful. Uh, ladies, uh, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. Great to be here with you. Yes, thank you so much for having us, Rich and Tim. Well, this is uh, really interesting to me. As I say, I know he you know health workforce issues have been uh, a major concern around the country for a while now, and, and you know here in California, clearly with the issues that we have with homelessness, et cetera, we know behavioral health issues are are certainly a big factor in that. Uh, so I I was really caught uh, your study really caught my eye. So. Let's start with some numbers. Um, Professor Kaufman, uh, you had several key findings that came out of this study in regard to some of the challenges that the behavioral healthcare workforce are facing. Can you run us through some of those? Um, sure. So I think, you know, first and foremost, that we are really seeing a big uptick in uh, demand and need for behavioral health services. This started before the pandemic, certainly accelerated. Uh, during the pandemic, um, as that kind of you know turned people's worlds upside down, and and some people coped by um, using substances, people you know became depressed or had you know exacerbations, and then also I think really important to note that on the heels of the pandemic, uh, you know the state of California decided to use some of its budget surplus to um, expand um, services for um, people with behavioral health needs. And, and perhaps a little later, Michelle can outline that a little more, but, but bottom line is we're standing up these new services going forward. And that just raises the question in, in, uh, of, are we gonna have enough substance use disorder counselors, psychiatrists, clinical social workers, other behavioral health professionals to meet that need? And I, I think the answer is, is no. Um, we heard a lot from the um, behavioral health directors and other stakeholders in the behavioral health safety net. There were a lot of struggles with recruitment and retention. One key issue um, that we talked about a little earlier, Rich, was is the pipeline of new graduates. And particularly in the case of substance use disorder counseling, the trend in new graduates is going the wrong way 
as we're seeing these increases in substance use disorders and, you know, and particularly these increases in fentanyl deaths and um, rising rates of marijuana use, that we're seeing a decrease of about 20% in the number of people graduating from educational programs for substance use disorder counselors. So that's very concerning. Um, and in other professions, we're seeing, you know, either modest growth or no growth. And so that's, you know, continues to raise the question, who's going to be there to staff services to provide for people in need? Well, I'm mean, looking at the numbers, it seems like there's a multi-pronged issue here. Not enough people in the programs, coupled with a lot of folks who are already in the profession reaching retirement age that, you know, the silver tsunami, as uh, we boomers uh, mm -hmm. like to call it. Um, and so you're really getting it from both ends, correct? Yes, that's correct. And some of the occupations, most notably psychiatry and psychology, there is, as you I say, the, the silver tsunami, many folks who are at or near retirement age, about one in 20 psychiatrists and psychologists are age 60 or over. So if they're not retired now, they're going to hit retirement age very soon. Um, though I think it's also important to note that we have some, uh, you know, different sorts of age problems in some other occupations. We see a lot of turnover among substance use disorder counselors, a lot of turnover among peer support uh, specialists. You know, these are occupations, you know, people may enter in their 20s or 30s, um, but they don't stay, you know, for many reasons. You know, some go on and pursue additional education and say become a, you know, clinical social worker and and, you know, that's good. They're in the system serving. Um, but other people um, leave um, due to low wages, burnout, you know, just all of the challenges of the job. So in those occupations, I think there's sort of a constant, you know, struggle to find new people. And Janet, so, if I if I yes. may, this is this is Michelle. I mean, I think in addition to the sort of, you know, the slowing down or the limit on people coming into the profession and then the aging out on the other end, um, you know, you laid out really well how demand has gone up, but there's also through the course of the pandemic, our, our overall labor market has shifted mm, yes, in some absolutely. ways that I think are really unexpected. And for certain parts of the healthcare delivery system, these shortfalls might be able to be made up with things like telehealth for the kinds of clients and the population that we serve in the safety net. Telehealth is only helpful to a certain point. A lot of our services need to be delivered in the field or in the home. And uh, they're very high touch with clients who have very high uh, acuity and complexity. And we're actually hearing a lot from our membership about overall market competition for our workforce that's highly trained and specialized, right? So we're losing folks who may have um, less education or training to the gig economy, to fast food, right? We're losing folks who may have licensure or certification as their it, demand goes up again across the board. And so people with private insurance or who can pay out of pocket are demanding more services. We've got the advent of a lot of, um, you know, tele mental health, um, you know, apps and other applications or even delivering services out of state when they don't have to relocate, move their families out. And then the schools are the other one. There's been a massive investment of funding to build out mental health services in schools. And a significant portion of our workforce has also migrated there for better wages and frankly, better schedules uh, to treat 
uh, children and youth with who, who may not have as high complexity or needs. And so we're really getting it from all sides, I would say at this point. And it, you know, it seems to me like when we started the research around this, we had a shortage it kind of escalated to a crisis somewhere in the middle of the pandemic. And now we're like nearing catastrophe because there's so much demand and so few workforce to, to sort of respond to this. Well, and the first thing I think as you're saying all this is that we're the status quo that we're existing in right now, we're already short of workers who can handle this. Uh, the governor has proposed this care court uh, proposal, which would vastly increase the number of people as I understand it, doing this sort of work, it sounds like there's no one to do that work. Like even if we found the funding to fund care courts, where do we find the people to hire to then do the care court work? I, I think you're right. And I'll just point out, I mean, care court is but one of many initiatives. And we're really grateful to the Newsom administration for, you know, lifting up the importance of behavioral health and taking so many steps to expand and advance and modernize how we do behavioral health in the state of California. But to your point, if there aren't humans to do that work, then those initiatives exist in, in theory only, right? And so I'll, I'll just point out, we've got a new mobile crisis benefit that's coming to Medi-Cal. Um, Medi-Cal has 15 million beneficiaries and the idea, you know, the federal requirements are 24 seven coverage in the field for crisis services. Um, that one we're really concerned about hiring for. Um, we also have what's called 90 day jail in reach, which is bringing Medicaid dollars into carceral settings. Um, staffing that is also going to be a significant challenge. And that's layered on top of multiple other initiatives that I you know, won't get into, but there's a ton of new program, new initiative in addition to CareCourt. And CareCourt is sort of a wild card. We don't really know how, how much demand there will be and what that will look like, but certainly counties are gonna be held to very strict standards of compliance with court rules there. And so we have an imperative to um, be ready to and staffed up to meet those, those requirements. Michelle, the report notes uh, a handful of recommendations, things that the state could be doing to try to help alleviate this, this situation. And I'm going to ask you to, to list a few of them, but also within the context that I think this is uh, a similar problem that a lot of areas of healthcare are facing right now, uh, whether it's you know nurse practitioners or doctors or what have you, everyone seems to be having a little bit of a shortage. So maybe add in there the competition for young people coming into the field to go your way instead of maybe going something where there might be, it might be a little, the pay might be better or the hours might be better, what have you, which you not, I think you noted earlier. Yeah, I mean, I'll say a couple of things here. One is that these are solvable problems, right? So, um, you know, about a generation ago, the state passed some new uh, nurse staffing laws that meant that hospitals had to staff up to certain patient to nurse ratios. And we made significant investments at that time in expanding the education that was available, but also bumping up pay for nurses. We did something similar with pharmacists in the past. And so the formula here is pretty straightforward. Expand the number of education and training slots, and then promise graduates a living wage by California standards on the other end. And, you know, so if I had to sort of 
bottom line it that that's really the the formula here um the challenge for us is that you know behavioral health has tended especially in the safety net to be undervalued just overall compared to the rest of healthcare right and so we struggle with starting off at somewhat of a disadvantage there and then as i mentioned before the work is harder now passionate people will be attracted to do this work because they're mission driven and we can count on that um, but in the past there you know we kind of had a little bit of a corner on the market like there weren't very many other systems doing behavioral health in the ways that we were doing it as the safety net right and i think that cultural shift is part of what sort of it, it's the good and the bad right like the positive at this moment is more people recognize the need for behavioral health services they're connecting those dots more more consumers more individuals are saying you know identifying we just saw this um with um uh, fetterman right like i have a mental health need and i'm going to be willing to say that that's the case and and go and ask for it well all of that awareness just bumps up demand and increases pressure on what I think is a really different kind of healthcare market. And unless we understand that, we're not gonna solve for it in the right ways. Well, and there's issues here too, from, from what I've seen in your study, where um, you're trying to offer as diverse a group of therapists as, as the community they need to serve. And that's apparently a, a real struggle right now as well, correct? Um, yes, that yes, that is. I mean, I think um, the county safety net um, providers, you know, do as well or better than others with the workforce that's available. But the workforce that's available does not really reflect the population that we see, particularly in those occupations that require a doctoral degree, uh, that uh, Latino and uh, Black Californians are underrepresented. Um, we see that Asians are underrepresented in most occupations except psychiatry. So you just have fewer people out there in the workforce who um, look like the clients in the county behavioral health uh, system um, or who speak the languages of people in the county behavioral health system. And you know that really impacts the ability of uh, Michelle's member counties to serve uh, their patients because you know, especially in behavioral health, speaking the same language, you know, is is critical because so much of behavioral health involves talking, you know, individual one on one or in groups, and and there's also you know importance of cultural understanding the cultural uh, context of the people um, you're caring for and how people in different cultures maybe talk about mental illness, experience mental illness. So big big challenges there. And, you know, my daughter's an MFT and, you know, she worked in the San Mateo County jail system for many years. And, you know, I think that's something we're all aware of that a, a, an awful lot of mental health care services uh, in this state are being performed in the jail system, you know, the, the incarceration system, which is sad. Uh, that would seem to be another struggle to get people who want to go work in that environment, even though that's where it seems like the need would be amplified exponentially. Uh, you're pointing to such a great 
policy tension, right? Um, sort of like, do we want to build out world-class health care systems in carceral settings, right? It's, or do we want to sort of try and prevent people who have mental illness and substance use disorders from being criminalized in the first place? You know, for us in California, we've landed on both, right? Yes, and we want to try to do as much as we can on the prevention side. And that's why trying to you know, staff up to some of these really um, great and ambitious initiatives like the mobile crisis benefit are so important. An alternative to law enforcement response to um, pure mental health crisis could potentially avoid one of those jail stays, right? But the, the state of California is the first state in the country to get a federal waiver to allow for Medicaid for the first time ever to pay for treatment services in jail settings. And Again, if we can staff to that, it could be a game changer because it will mean for the first time ever kind of base minimum medical healthcare delivery standards in those settings, which would be a tremendous way to try and, you know, intersect with or interrupt that that cycle um, of criminalization. So lots of really great potential around the policy space here. Um, but can we deliver on it from a capacity standpoint? Well, that it could be more problematic this year. I think, uh, as we saw last year, you know, the, the governor pledged, uh, I think it was $200 million in uh, toward workforce building programs in behavioral health. And of course, his budget for this year, now that we're in a deficit, has proposed delaying that workforce investment. What impact is that going to have on this whole effort? Well, frankly, again, we can't afford to not make these investments as as the state. It's it's really crucial. Um, as you mentioned, uh, there is a combination of uh, different initiatives that are proposed to be delayed. Uh, social work initiative, addiction, psychiatry and medicine fellowships, funding for uh grants for behavioral health professions, masters in social works, nursing initiatives, et cetera. You know, all in all, um, we've actually tagged this at um, 68 million in 22-23 and then 329.4 million in 23-24 that are proposed to be put off. Um, you know, this, this, would be, this would be pretty bad for us. Um, I'll give you one specific example, the area of the state with the highest workforce shortages in behavioral health is the Central Valley. And our one of our counties has a really strong partnership with one of the California State Universities there. That CSU has had to turn away roughly 150 applicants for their master's in social work program each year over the last several years. And if they could have accepted that 150, uh, those 150 students, uh, we might not have a shortage of those licensed professionals in the area of the state that most desperately needs that workforce. And so it, for us, you know, it's crucial of all the of all the various priorities that we have in the budget. This one is really the glue that helps to make sure that we can get some of these things over the finish line. And it won't be immediate. Right. It's a it's an investment today that may pay off in four or five years. And Rich, I'll just add is that we see um, social work programs up and down the state, not just in the Central Valley, that each year turn away many qualified 
applicants. So, I, you know, I think, you know, it's not the case that people don't want to go into social work or other behavioral health occupations. They do. It's that our masters of social work programs and other programs don't have the resources they need to train all of the qualified applicants. So now you you mentioned the Central Valley is a place that it, there's particular urgency, but I know in, in other uh, healthcare areas, there are a lot of problems getting services to people in rural areas. Is that a, an issue that you face that, that people that are in this industry just don't want to be in the far-flung reaches of, of California. And uh, I can imagine that that could be a problem. Can you maybe speak to that? So, sure. So certainly, I mean, I think we, we you know, we see in addition, to, I mean, the Central Valley probably has the, does have the worst shortages. Inland Empire close on its heels. And as you know, parts of the Inland Empire are rural. And and we see this in, in, in the far north as well, particularly psychiatry. So what I mean far north is the rural counties north of Sacramento. So, so definitely there are challenges in rural areas uh, across the state. And yes, some of it is that people may not want to live in rural areas. I think the other reality is that we don't have as many training options available in many of our rural areas. And again, I'll focus on psychiatry. Um, as of today, there are no residency programs in psychiatry up and running north of Sacramento. There are none on the Central Coast. Now there is in Butte County, um, there is a psychiatry residency program that will be opening um, within the next few years. But for years and years, there has been no psychiatry training north of Sacramento. And I think not much in the way of rural rotations for psychiatry residents uh, trained in other parts of the state. And, and this is important because we know that people from rural areas are more likely to practice in rural areas. And while educational programs for other behavioral health professionals are better distributed across the state, there are still many rural areas where there's not a local program. And, you know, and I think this is a challenge. We know many of our folks in our rural areas um, have lower income backgrounds and that's sort of the nature of our, our rural areas of the state. And, you know, those are folks who can't necessarily afford to say, well, I'm just going to pack up and move and go to school full time in some other more expensive part of the state. Um, they need options that are local, either on the ground or online to the extent that's feasible um, so that they can continue to work and support their families in their own communities. We see a few examples of that. I think it was Tulare County that when we did our stakeholder interviews talked about some efforts they'd made to invest in, in folks in their county workforce who say had bachelor's degrees to support them in going on to get a master's degree so that they can continue to work for the county practicing at a higher level and, and filling a need that it... One more thing that I'll say, and I'm so glad you brought up rural California, uh, Tim. You know, we have had staff in uh, rural California whose homes have burned down um, and who have had to relocate, say, to Nevada across the border. Or uh, we've also had scenarios where a county after years has finally been successful in recruiting a clinician from out of state to come and work in their community in California. 
and they literally could not find housing. And so had to turn down the offer because uh, rural California actually has pretty significant housing shortages as well. And again, those have been exacerbated by wildfires and other natural disasters. And so, um, you know, trying to recruit and retain a workforce in rural California definitely requires more than money. It, it requires a ton more creativity and support and, um, uh, you know, think long range thinking of the sort that Janet just laid out. So uh, this is a perfect time for me to to promote our next conference, which is on uh, housing. It's a conference on housing. Capital Weekly is hosting on March 9th in Sacramento. You can either go in person or you can sign up and go on Zoom. If you go to the Capital Weekly website, look under our events page, you find all the information on that. But I would be remiss if I did not promote that. It is, there is a fee to come or you can just uh, apply for a fee waiver. And if you can't afford it, we're happy to have anyone. So don't let... Uh, don't let lack of money uh, disinterest you because we will happily bring anyone in that that uh, wants to apply for a fee waiver. So I'll shut up now and you guys can go back to the conversation. Well, I you know I only had one other thing, and um, I'm just curious: is there anything that you can point to in this whole system that's working well that you know you can point to as a as a success? Because I think that's important too to note that even with all these challenges, there are successes out there. And also, are there are, are there models that you've seen anywhere else that are good models, be it in anywhere else in California or maybe outside of California, that you can point to and say, you know, that would like to see that happen here too. Michelle, I'll, I'll, I'll direct that your way, but you know, Janet, but weigh in anytime. Well, yeah, I mean, again, this is sort of the top concern for our county behavioral health directors in this moment, and so there are several things that we've been doing. One, partnerships, not only with higher education, but we have um, county behavioral health agencies that have partnered as early as sort of um, middle and high school to try and promote and sort of build awareness about uh, behavioral health professions. And so that in-community recruitment and awareness about behavioral health professions has been key. Um, the state of California um, is now allowing for Medi-Cal reimbursement for peer support specialists. And so we're in the process of launching that benefit and um, peers are not only proven to be extremely effective with our population, um, but uh, you know they have lower education and training requirements than say clinicians. So um, it's a it's a really wonderful return on investment and peers then can, you know, move up the ladder if they so desire, as Janet mentioned earlier. Um, you know, some of these initiatives to do earn and learn or um, again, front load um, the educational costs are really key to diversifying the population. Right now, um, the sort of average county behavioral health worker, whether it's with county or as through a contract provider is a white woman. And that does not align or square entirely with the populations that we're serving in Medi-Cal. Um, but I think speaks to some of the um, cost and the financial burdens of trying to pursue these um, careers. And so um, we've seen initiatives that um, pay for education upfront in exchange for service commitments in the safety net. 
those sorts of initiatives are really successful and helpful. And then again, for decades now, there have been initiatives at the federal and state levels that um, allow people with bachelor's degrees to, um, with some um, additional training, move up to master's levels. And so those sorts of things have been successful. All in all, you know, we, we kind of know the tools and we have the, the recipes that we need. It's really about making sure that we follow through with the governor's commitments from last year. Well, I on that note, I, I guess I'll say, you know, this has been a fascinating discussion. I know there are real challenges out there, but, um, you know, it's, it's a good thing that we are paying attention to those challenges and hopefully... Um, you know, we're able to do something about it, I guess, right? That's the whole idea. <laughs> Thank you uh, to our guest today, uh, Michelle Cabrera uh, from the uh, County Behavioral Health Directors Association, uh, Dr. Janet Kaufman from UCSF, the Health, Health Force Center at UCSF. Uh, really helpful today to have you guys come on and, and, and share all this information with us. Thank hey, you one question I did have, uh, so you recently released this study. Is there a place where our listeners can find that uh, if they want to go in and, and dig into the weeds? So, yes, absolutely. It's on the County Behavioral Health Director's uh, website, and we'd be happy to send you a link. Um, Health Force also just recently published a companion report that really that focuses on the paraprofessional workforce, peers, community mental health workers, and others, and we'd be happy to provide a link to that, too. Okay, so listeners, if you uh, if you want to see those, go to the Capital Weekly site. We have a link to the podcasts, and we'll make sure that we include both of those links in that podcast story uh, that'll be on you know just under podcasts on Capital Weekly. So yeah, we'll definitely get those in for anyone who wants to kind of dig into this issue a little further. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us today. Oh, our pleasure. And yes, great, thank great you. Questions, Rich. Great right. questions. Thanks you both. Bye. See All right. All right. Well, thanks again to Dr. Janet Kaufman and to uh, Michelle Doty Cabrera of the Ca uh, County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California. That's a mouthful. Um, but that can only mean one thing, Tim. It's time for who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Here we are. And there's, a, there's good options this week. Yeah, there really are some good options this week. It's, uh, you know, it's hard, I guess, if you think about it a little bit, just on the on the statewide thing, I mean, Mia Bonta did not have a good week. I mean, it, 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 it started out bad and it seemed to get worse. Although I do feel like uh, by agreeing to uh, recuse herself from decisions about her husband's uh, funding, et cetera, I feel like she diffused it. Um, if she had dragged this out, I think she'd had a worse week. So in that sense, she made a good decision. I, I don't think that it was a good decision to let it get as far as it did, because it certainly got a lot of attention at the beginning of the week. Uh, I feel like now we've sort of all moved on, but still not a great look. Especially on camera. You know, when you're on camera, you know, jousting with a uh, TV reporter and, uh, you know, you're especially when you're you're trying to make a case that it's okay for your uh, committee to oversee something that has your husband at the head of it and you know their budget I should say that uh, uh, you know look you know in politics perception is everything right yeah uh, perception is everything she probably wasn't wrong if it had been vetted by all of the powers that be but it just the look is terrible and uh you know she, but I agree with you she did the right thing she probably did the right thing certainly for herself you know because get out of this being a 
a story because the longer that you stick with it, the the worse the story becomes for you. There's no, there's, she got into a no-win situation. So That's true. definitely got, not a good week. She got some good communications advice, said, bite the bullet, move on. Stand down. So, Stand down. Uh, so then our next candidate is in San Mateo. And yes. the mayor is, is looking at a potential recall. This is only this is only in the bubbling under uh, phase. Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, again, it's a lot of political infighting, but uh, I'm not sure I'm going to say her name right. Uh, I believe it's Amorens Lee. Uh, the interesting thing about this to me is that there were five former mayors who came out in favor of her being recalled. <laughs> you know, it's one thing, you know, again, it's politics and the back and forth, but to have five former mayors uh, support having you removed from office, that's not a good thing. No, but what I found was interesting is that the sitting uh, leadership in that area are all supporting her. Uh, uh, Bonilla is, has said that this is ridiculous, that it's just politics. And uh, Fiona Ma has come out in support. And I do, I mean, I'm not an expert on that area, but I do feel like the politics of San Mateo has shifted quite a bit over the last you know, 10 or so years. So I wonder if, uh, if this is sort of political infighting on policy. It's basically their disagreements of policy are now turned into sort of this recall thing. I frankly, I don't know, but also uh, uh, this all comes about, she was actually appointed mayor right? Uh, because the, there was an opening. Uh, there was kind of a battle. They actually had a week where there was no mayor at all uh, because they were refusing to follow the procedure to go through an appointment. Uh, because the mayor would have the power to appoint a, another sitting city council person, and the, the existing city council people were not enthusiastic about that. They wanted to fill that seat before they appointed the mayor, which they ultimately did. Uh, but it seemed like it generated a lot of bad blood. And then also from reading uh, the 650, which is a blog about that area, um, it sounds like this has a lot to do with housing policy, which is driving so many decisions everywhere in California right now. And that uh, Amaranth Lee is, has a sort of more progressive approach and wants to build more housing and more affordable housing, which is not sitting well with some of the more, I know that I would say conservative, but people that are, are more of the NIMBY background than the not in my backyard <laughs> housing attitude. Uh, so I suspect, I have no evidence here, but my, my suspicion is that that's driving a lot of this. Well, and the thing I don't know about San Mateo, too, is, you know, the mayor's office has different powers in different cities. You know, we, you know some cities have strong mayor uh, charters and others don't where, you know, the mayor doesn't really have any more power than any other person on the city council. I really don't know what the situation is there in San Mateo, but um, it certainly does seem like one of those situations where, you know, the, the power aspect of it all is a big part of this, right? Who gets to do what? And that that's that's always a recipe for disaster, you know, when it comes right down to it. So the Oregon recall organizers, I believe, have to come up with about 8,000 signatures. Uh, it remains to be seen whether or not that will happen. Uh, I don't have a good sense of where the the populace is on this recall but uh anyway nobody really wants that i'm sure, sure emerents lee would be happy to be moving on doing other things and in fact she is really setting the cost for recall election which uh is all over the map i'm seeing numbers that 
do not really track, but something on the order of six hundred thousand uh, dollars, which seems crazy to me. But uh, but there you go. So we'll see whether that actually happens. But right. none of them, frankly, neither of those candidates come close to our winner this week for worst week. And this comes courtesy as as so many of our our winners do. Uh, California City News brought this to our attention, and it is a whopper. It is an absolute whopper. Yes. So down in Lodi, uh, Shakir Khan of the Lodi City Council was arrested and booked when they discovered uh, a huge pile of, of ballots in his house, filled out, signed. Apparently, the, the story is that he actually signed them. Then after he gets out, he posts on social media a message in Urdu saying, hey, if someone contacts you asking you if you filled out this ballot, tell them yes and say that you signed it, which seems very disingenuous. And on top of this, the uh, the mayor said that he had resigned. Uh, Khan's uh, lawyer says, no, he didn't resign. I don't know where you're getting that. And then also, this comes on top of the fact that Khan and his brothers have been accused of running an illegal gambling operation. So, uh Mr. Khan has hands down taken this week's uh, this week's prize. I can't think of anyone that's had as bad a week as he has. This is really stunning. Well, and a, and a very much a self-created one. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I was reading through uh, the litany of charges he's facing, you know, uh, felony charges, you know, false yeah. declaration, uh, registration of fictitious people, making... Uh, or defacing, you know, voter uh, materials, and it just goes on and on and on, right? And then, yes, the, you know, it's having several, several of the voter, quote, unquote, I'm using air quotes, voters were not even in, the, were not even in this country. So, uh, yeah, it does not look good. Yeah. You know, Tim, I just thought of somebody else. This is a, a, maybe a little bit of a stretch, but you'll, I think you'll understand my reasoning here. One other person I'll put right, right in that whole conversation is having a really bad week. Uh, that would be Mr. Harvey Weinstein of, uh, of Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein fame. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you heard was sentenced to 16 years in prison this week for uh, a sexual assault that occurred back in 2013 He's already in jail. He's all, he's 70 years old and in bad health. He's serving a 23-year prison sentence already. But this, this um, sentence is not to run concurrent. Uh, it is to be tacked on to that uh, sentence that he's already serving, which pretty much ensures that he's going to die in jail. And the reason I, I bring this up, we all uh, became familiar with his story and how it Im impacted state houses across the country, including our own, that we said enough movement here in California, Me Too, really was sparked a lot by what was happening with Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, it gave a lot of people, a lot of women courage to come forward and, you know, talk about things that were happening here, uh, including under our dome. So, uh, and it's something that hasn't gone away. So uh, certainly when something is like this happens, you know, it, it reminds us that the that the the reach goes out far beyond Hollywood. That is true. And, you know, I have to say he really could have done a lot more time than that. I think the only reason, you know, that I actually feel like he had a 
he probably should have spent more time in prison. Well, there's no problem about it. He should be spending a lot more time in prison for the things he's done than he's ever going to spend. Oh, for sure. That, you know, and what I started to say, my, you know, <clears throat> he was the keynote speaker uh, at my daughter's graduation when she gradu- graduated from UC Santa Barbara. Wow. He was, I mean, which doesn't seem like all that long ago, which means he was still a a, a titan of the industry, right? Yeah. Um, so, hey, sometimes justice comes late, but better late than never, that this yeah. man should never again see the light of day outside of bars. So yeah, I agree there. Prison. Although I will say, I would say he's a kind of a stretch calling him. I mean, yes, I agree with you. That was certainly a political impact, but I would say like, he's not, politics was the least of his worries. Yes. In, in schemes things. But I would say in the getting right into the pocket, I'd say I'd still give it to Shakir Khan. Obviously he won't be oh, doing yeah. it long in prison as a Harvey Weinstein or Weinstein. Uh, but, uh, but I'd say he's more directly in our, in our target of, uh, of politics. This is yeah. purely political. This is one hundred percent political, political uh, crime, uh, and just fascinating that someone thought they could get away with that. Which again leads me to believe what else is what else are people doing that we don't know about? Absolutely, that's that's always the question. This is only the stuff we know. So, well, on that note, there's only one way we can end this episode, Rich, and we're going to it right now. Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.